0: How's everybody doing? You guys doing all right? All three of you. Excellent. It's going to be a great morning. Wow. Okay. Well, welcome to Journey. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Ken, and I'm glad that you're here with us. I want, uh, we're going to give you a pop quiz this morning, and so if you have the notes, you can use um, maybe the margin along the bottom of the notes or to the sides, Or um, if you don't have the notes, you can use that connection card, the back of the connection card that Pastor Aaron mentioned just a moment ago. And here's the pop quiz. I want you to write down the top five relationships in your life and put them in order of priority. Okay, so number one would be the most important relationship in your life. Number two, number three, number four, number five. If you're an extreme introvert, we welcome you to just put down three names because maybe that's about as much as you're gonna get. But uh, would you you do that right now? I know I'm getting a lot of like weird stares. So I love you and I'm glad you're staring at me, but um, just go ahead and start writing or pretend that you're writing and it'll make me feel better. Even if you're not really writing anything down, Chip Friedberg, Um, just pretend. And we're doing this, like right now. Like this is a thing we're doing all around the room. At least in my mind, we were gonna be doing this, so. If you're watching online, you you can do this as well. Top five relationships, put them in in rank of priority. And then to hold on to that, because we're going to come back to that in a few moments. We have been in a series called No Other Gods, and the premise of this series is that every single one of us, uh, regardless of how religious you are or how irreligious you are, every single one of us have a throne in the inner being of our lives. And somebody or something is going to sit in that throne. And the question is, for followers of Jesus particularly, the, the question is, is God sitting in that throne and is he sitting in that throne exclusively? In fact, the statement that we've been making throughout the series is that God alone must sit on the throne. And that's not just a catchy phrase to, to rhyme so that, it, that you remember it, but it's every one of those words is important. God alone, exclusively, not God along with a few other things sitting on that throne. God alone must sit on the throne. And so what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is looking at some case studies, particularly from the Old Testament, of individuals who had to learn ...that God alone must sit on the throne. And today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12. And again, this is an easier one to find. If you're not used to your Bibles, uh, you have a paper Bible. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And if you just start at the very beginning and just move a few pages, you'll get to Genesis chapter 12. While you're turning to Genesis chapter 12, and we're not going to... ...all this is not going to be up on the screen. So you're going to need to look some of this up. As you're turning there, our main character for this week is Abraham... And uh, in some of the beginning passages we're going to look at, you'll see him called Abram. His name was Abram, and then it was changed to Abraham, and so don't let that mess you up too much. And in the passage we're going to look at, uh, we're going to start with a passage where Abraham is in his 70s, and God comes and asks him to do something pretty, um, pretty difficult, especially in that day and that time, um, but that there's a reward, there's a payoff, If he will follow through and do this. So Genesis chapter 12, we're going to begin with the second part of verse 1. Is everybody there? Oh man, you got come on. Talk back to me this morning. Everybody there? All right, thank you. Oh, thank you. All right, here we go. Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others i will bless those who bless you and bless those who and and uh, curse those who treat you with contempt and all the families on earth will be blessed through you that's a, that's a pretty incredible blessing that god is giving to this obscure man a guy named abraham a guy again who's in his 70s but this blessing is based on the premise of Abraham doing something and doing something that would have been unheard of in that time. In that ancient culture, you never really left the place that you were born. You never really traveled very far from the place of, of your birth, of the place of, of where, where, where you would have um, first started out. And so God is asking Abraham to do something unheard of, to leave his native country and his relatives, to give up everything that is safe and known for the sake of something greater. And so Abraham does this. Packs up the U-Haul. Packs up his family. He doesn't have, he doesn't have an end destination for his GPS. He's just going to go on a ride and wait for God to, to tell him where to go. And so God leads him to a place called Canaan. And now Abraham has landed there and God gives him the next piece of instruction. And this is found in verse 7. God speaks to him again in verse 7. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram, or Abraham, and said, I will give this land. Speaking of this whole area of Canaan, he goes, Abraham, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. I'm going to give this land to your descendants. There's only one problem Abraham doesn't have any descendants. Abraham is an old man, his wife is an old woman. She has been barren. She hasn't been able to give birth to any kids. They don't have any descendants. This is before Abraham was Father Abraham. At this point, Father Abraham has many cattle. He doesn't have many sons. And so God says, hey Abraham, I hope you like this land. I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And Abraham might be thinking, that's kind of cruel. That's kind of a mean thing to say to somebody who can't have any kids. But God had made a promise, a promise that included a child. Now the years turned into decades, and the promise probably started to feel like a distant dream for Abraham. But then it happened. In fact, I want you now to uh, skip over the Genesis chapter twenty-one. We're going to start in verse one of Genesis twenty-one. And I I love how this starts, the very first verse. Genesis chapter 21, it begins this way. The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. Okay, if if you don't get much out of this sermon, here's something to get out of the sermon. The Lord keeps his word. The Lord is faithful to his word. Now, if you would have asked Abraham and Sarah, they probably would have said, hey, we would have preferred that the Lord had been faithful to his word decades earlier. We don't always like the timetable of God. But in God's perspective, his timing is perfect. We all get, you know, our panties in a wad over this. The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant. And she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. And this happened at just the time God had said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac. And eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. And Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. I can't even imagine this. I'm a 45-year-old with kids in their teenage years, and I'm like feeling exasperated after a day, right? But I'll tell you this about Abraham. Nobody on this earth had ever wanted a son or a child more than Abraham had wanted a son or a child. He had dreamed of this. He He had held on to the promise of God, the word of God that had been given to him. He had waited and sacrificed And finally his wife had a baby and it was a boy. And I'm telling you, the party that took place, can you imagine the celebration that occurred? So here's the question. I think it's an important question for us. Had Abraham been waiting and sacrificing for God? Had Abraham been waiting and sacrificing for God? Or had Abraham been waiting and sacrificing for the boy? Was he trusting in God as a means to an end? Or was he trusting in God just simply for the faithfulness of God? And truth be told, and maybe you won't respect me this much after after I say this, but there have been seasons of my life where I have trusted in God as a means to an end. And I imagine that that's been true of you as well. Sometimes it's, oh God, I will serve you if fill in the blank." A decade at least, at least, we'll talk about this in just a moment, the timing of this, but after at least a decade, God came calling on Abraham again, and this time we're in Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, we have one of the most difficult verses in the whole Bible. It's a verse that I, I'll be honest, before we even read it, I don't like this verse very much. Genesis 22, verse 2, God is speaking to Abraham, and he says, Take your son your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah, go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. You know, there's some verses in the Bible that I wish we could just, you know, take out a bottle of Whiteout. Any of you guys remember Whiteout? That's like dating me, right? What is Whiteout? There's some verses that you just wish that you could just scratch out, Right? Did you catch how God described Isaac in in what he's instructing Abraham to do? Your only son whom you love so much. Take your only son whom you love so much. By the way, this is the first time that this word love is used in the whole Old Testament. Your only son whom you love so much. I want you to take him and I want you to, to offer him as a burnt sacrifice. Abraham's attention had become adoration. And here's what I find to be true. The more beautiful a thing is, the more capacity it has for becoming an idol. The more I fear losing something, the more I worship it. And the question for Abraham is, can you love the relationship without worshiping it? I promise you, there's relationships in your life, or if you're younger, maybe there's relationships that you want to have in your life that sometimes can be objects of worship. And God would say to you and he would say to me that he alone, God alone, must sit on the throne. Remember, most idols are good and decent things. Most idols are not horrific, evil, wicked things. Most idols are good and decent things that we allow to become supreme. Now, I do need to say this. God never actually intended for Abraham to actually sacrifice his son. We we need to make that clear. For Abraham, he lived in a time where the law had not yet been given. In fact, Abraham is the beginning of all this. There had been no law. And Abraham lived in a time where child sacrifice was actually rampant among the pagans. So when he hears this command from God, he just figures, well, this is just, God is just just like all the other gods out there, he's requiring child sacrifices, and, and they would do this. I mean, we have, we have um, archaeologists have discovered whole civilizations where this child sacrifice thing, this isn't just something we talk about, like this actually happened. So Abraham doesn't have the law yet. He, he knows, and we're going to speak to this in a moment, like he, he knows that God is faithful. He knows that God, he's probably even wrestling with this whole thing. So I want to make it very clear, lest anyone walk out of here with the wrong impression. If you hear a voice in your head, and you think it's from God, but this voice is telling you to kill somebody, (laughs) that's not God. Okay, turn to the person next to you and say, that's not God. That was a good place to amen, by the way. Right? So, so Abraham hears from God that he's supposed to take his one and only son, the son that he loves so much, that he's supposed to go to Moriah and he's supposed to sacrifice his son, right? And i got to imagine that Abraham didn't sleep very well that night. I know he was a man of faith and we can argue and we can look at Hebrews chapter 11 and see the incredible faith. I, I, I also realized that Abraham was a human being i got to imagine that that was a night of wrestling with God. And we pick up in verse 3. It says, the next morning, Abraham got up early. And he saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day of their journey, and I, can we just pause and say, again, this just speaks of three days this journey had to take? These are the parts where I just go, come on, God. Give this guy a break, right? Like it couldn't be a three-hour journey. It had to be a a three-day journey. They're on a journey for three days. On the third day of the journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little further, and then there's several statements. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. We will worship. See, for Abraham, he recognized that worship isn't just about singing songs. In choosing God over everything and everyone, Abraham is defining what it means to worship. Worship isn't music, worship is saying, God, I choose that you would be greater than any relationship in my life, than any possession in my life, that you will be greater. God, you alone must sit on the throne. That's worship. But also recognize what he says here. He says, and then we will come right back. That speaks to Abraham's faith. Abraham had a trust in God. In fact, several thousand years later, the writer of Hebrews would say exactly what Abraham was thinking. Abraham believed that if his son was to die, that God would resurrect him. He had a faith to believe that God is faithful. So let's keep going. The very next verse, verse 6 says, So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is a sheep for the burnt offering?" God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. So let's pause right here. Do you notice the wood is being placed on Isaac's shoulders? This gives us a clue into how old Isaac is. I always looked at this story, and and I had heard growing up that Isaac was probably in his teenage years. Most Bible commentaries actually say that, that Isaac was probably in his 20s. Regardless, he's not a little boy. You got a teenage son, a, a, a son in his 20s. The wood is being put on his shoulders. And this teenager, 20 something year old boy asked a very astute question um, Dad, where's the animal for the sacrifice? And Do you, you catch Abraham's answer? God will provide a sheep. And they both walked on together. And I bet each of them was deep in thought. Isaac's wheels are turning. Abraham's, again, he he was a man of great faith, but I also believe he was a human being. I believe his wheels were turning. Verse 9, when they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. And then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. I mean, this is intense, is it not? The fact that a hundred and something year old man was able to tie up his teenage or 20 something year old son speaks to Isaac's love and honor and respect for his father. Don't tell me that this kid couldn't have gotten out of this. He he had such an honor and respect and love for his father that I'm, I'm sure he's going, I don't get at all what's going on here. But I know I love my dad. I know I respect my dad. I know my dad has always, always treated me with love. Do you notice that Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice? Abraham would have been a hunter. He, Abraham would have, would have killed animals. And, and when you instinctively go to kill an animal, you don't pause. You just, it's just instinct, right? You just, you just push that knife through. But in this instance, Abraham, he's, he's, he's pausing. this is a moment. And Scripture says in verse 11, "At that moment the angel of the Lord called to him from Abraham or called to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, yes, Abraham replied. Here I am. This is a great statement throughout scripture. When someone hears the voice of God and they say, here I am, it's a a, a statement of surrender. Here I am. I'm surrendered to you. He says, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way. And then here's a statement, for now I know that you truly fear God. We're going to come back to that word fear in just a moment. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. I got to tell you, when I was a kid, this story absolutely terrified me. And the older I get, especially as a dad of a 17-year-old boy, it hasn't really lost that terrifying effect I read the story and I just go, what are you doing, God? Like, what is this all about? Ultimately, it's about loving God supremely. That's what this whole story is about. Did you catch that phrase? He says, now I know, the angel is speaking to Abraham, and he says, now I know that you truly fear God. This word fear is interesting in the Hebrew. It literally means wholeheartedly committed to. He says, Abraham, now I know that you are wholeheartedly committed to me. Wholehearted. What's the, what's the antonym of wholehearted? Is to have a divided loyalty. James in his epistle talks about being double minded. The angel says to Abraham, Now I know that you wholeheartedly trusted me. You're not, you're not leaving something. that that I'm unable to to deal with. Like, you're saying, I'm all yours, God. I'm all in. I'm wholehearted in my trust and my faith in you. I think the question for you and I in this room is, are we wholehearted in our trust toward God? Like, are we completely surrendered to God? God, you, you can have all of me. We sing songs like this, but is it actual? Is it really true in our lives? God, I'm wholehearted toward you. I'm not holding anything back Isaac was a wonderful gift to Abraham but Isaac was never created to be central he was never created to be most important or ultimate I think a great way of illustrating this is to think of a bicycle wheel and on a bicycle wheel you have these spokes right you think about these spokes, I'm going to compare these spokes to maybe relationships in your life. And whether you're a teenager in this room or, or you're a retired person in this room or somewhere in between, like we all have these important relationships in our lives. The older that we get, the more of these spokes we have, right? I think about just for my life, like one of these spokes would be Carrie, my wife of 22 years. My favorite human being in this whole world. One of these spokes would be my son, Kyle, my 17-year-old. One of these spokes would be Kate, my 16-year-old. One of these spokes would be Kara, my 14-year-old. One of these spokes would be my mom. One would be my dad. One would be my brother, my, my sisters. Like, like these different spokes. But here, here's what happens in American Christianity. is often God just becomes another spoke. And that's not the relationship that he wants to have with us. God doesn't want to be a spoke on the wheel. God wants to be the central hub that all the spokes come from and connect to. And in fact, when God is a central hub, what actually happens is it makes all the spokes the stronger. Can you imagine a bicycle wheel without a central hub that the spokes come from and go to and are connected to? But so many of us in our lives, we're like, God, yeah, you can be a spoke on the wheel, I don't know if I want you to be the central hub, that seems a little weird, like what if you ask me to do something that I'm uncomfortable with? Children are incredible gifts. Can I just say that one more time? Children are incredible gifts. I love my kids. I've been blessed by God with three kids that I love with all my heart. They make me proud all the time. Children are incredible gifts, but they are not meant to become our identity. And especially in the United States, we've gotten this a little weird, a little whacked. The children are not meant to be the CEOs of the home. Ask any marketing expert. You can Google this. Don't take my word for it. But marketers understand that kids are the ones who are actually making the major financial decisions of families these days. Do you know that? So much of the marketing is actually going straight to your kids because they know that the kids are the ones who are making the major financial decisions of a household. Kids are making the major decisions regarding calendars and schedules. And it's not supposed to be that way. It's why we're so stressed out as a culture. In fact, they're only meant to live under our roofs for a season. I'll say that again for the people in the back. Our kids are only meant to live under our roofs for a season. That would be a good place to say amen. I don't know. Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So many marriages have been all messed up because they didn't get that first part right. You got to leave, you got to cut the ties in order to truly cleave, not just physically, but emotionally. But because children have become our identity, like we don't we even want them to leave. Like We can't even imagine our kids leaving. You look at different... Uh, they talk about divorce, and, and counselors will tell you this. Like There's different years where divorce is more common than other years. Seven years, for whatever reason. The first year, third year, seven years. Increasingly, the time where a lot of divorces are happening is in year 20 to 25. And you know what's going on in that phase? The kids are leaving the home... And mom and dad are looking at each other, and they've just been roommates for the last 15 years. Their lives have completely revolved around their kids. And I love my kids. Please hear me say, I'm not against kids. But our kids are not meant to be ultimate, they're not meant to sit in the throne of our lives. So you have moms and dads who are devastated. When their kids walk out, they don't even know who they are anymore. They don't even know how, how their own personal identity or even how to relate with each other. I think may, maybe a, a way of um, illustrating this, some of you guys were wondering, did you know that you had a shirt hanging up there that whole time? How many of you were wondering? You're like, did you know that you, you forgot to put in your shirt? We're gonna do a little Mr. Rogers time for those of you who are old enough to remember. Hi neighbor, how are you doing? Here, when I'm busy um, and, you know, some mornings you're just like, like there's not enough morning. <laughs> maybe you wake up a little late or you're in a hurry you're in a rush. And sometimes, and, and maybe you don't wear a button shirt very often. But, but sometimes what I find is that if, if I'm not careful, what I do is I, I miss, I, I miss the, 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 the top button. Any of you ever done this before? And I'll get all the way down to the bottom and I realized that I'm, I, I screwed, oh crud, I, I screwed the whole thing up. Because I'm in a rush. I'm in a hurry. I'm not really thinking. I'm not being intentional. So I've got to unbutton all the buttons and start over. And here's what I find that if, if I get the top button put in the top slot, and I get that button right, and then when I go down to the next button, it, it, it all just works, doesn't it? This, this is how I put this in my notes, and I think this is so important for us to get. If I get the top button right, everything else falls into place. If I get it wrong, everything else is out of alignment. here's, Here's how this relates to what we've been talking about. God has ordered our lives in such a way that our devotion to him is a top button. If that relationship is in proper order, if God alone is sitting on the throne, you'll find that every other relationship will fall into place and it will be far more satisfying But if you're wrong about the top button, if you put the top button in the wrong slot, everything else is going to go wrong as well. So let me ask you a few questions. And I'm going to get in your face a little bit with this. And this is going to be harder for some of you in this room than for others. But these are in your notes if you want to follow along. Here's the first question. What person or people matter most to you in this world? That's why I asked you at the very beginning of the sermon, before we even got into the content, I asked you, what are the top five relationships in your life, and to rank them according to priority. You, you should know that. You should know who is the most important relationship. What person or people matter most to you in this world? And I would encourage you to communicate that. Since our kids were small, we've t- I've told them, in fact, Kate's sitting in the front row, and she knows, my wife is the most important person The most important human being in my life. God is the most, God alone sits on the throne. But I let them know all the time. When they're misbehaving, when they talk to my wife in a nasty way, you you don't want to do it. Because I say, you don't talk to my wife that way. There's my wife, and then there's you three. (laughs) (laughs) If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy What person or people matter most to you in this world? Do you know? Do you know? Have, you, have you thought about it? Sometimes we go through your life and we don't even think about this stuff. What person or people matter most to you in this world? Let me ask you the second question. Is there a relationship in your life that seems to be the, the determining factor in whether or not you are happy and joyful or sad and depressed? Are you, in other words, are you allowing a human relationship to determine your emotional well-being? you answer it. I mean, if it is, then you say yes. If, if there isn't, then you say no. Can you find signs of disordered love in your family relationships? Are there signs of disordered love in your family relationships? In other words, relationships that are just not in the proper order of priority. How would a deeper worship of God affect all of this? These are important questions that we all need to ask, we all need to pay attention to. And and here's what I found to be true. Idols are not defeated by removing them, but by replacing them. In fact, the more time that I try to remove an idol, I focus on it. And if you focus on something, you can't get it out of your mind, right? You've heard me say this probably a million times, but if if I told you to forget the number 322... In fact, I want everybody at the count of three, we're all going to forget the number 322, okay? So 322 will now be out of your mind. You will no longer think about the number 322. At the count of three, we're not going to think about 322. It's going to be wiped from our memories. You will not be able to remember 322. One, two, three. We're supposed to forget that number, Right? Now, how do you forget the number 322? You start thinking about what? Other numbers. Start thinking about 517. You start th- thinking about 922. You start thinking about 518. You start thinking about, and I'm telling you, after enough time, you won't remember what the original number was. If you want to get rid of idols, you don't get rid of them by, by trying to, focusing all of your attention on removing them. You start replacing them. We, we say to the throne of our life, you're not going to sit in that place. You're, you might be a good and decent relationship in my life. You might be a worthy priority in my life, but you are no longer sitting in the throne. God alone must sit on the throne. God alone must sit on the throne. So how do, how do we, what do we think about to replace these idols that need to be removed How about we think about this, 2,000 years after Abraham and Isaac, another firstborn son would be asked to carry wood as a sacrifice up a mountain. On that mountain, he would be stripped naked and laid on the wooden structure where his hands and feet would be nailed to it. He would be hoisted up into the air where for several hours he would suffocate to death. And while he was suffocating, he would say things like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Ultimately, he would commit his spirit into the Lord's hands. This time, there would be no voice from heaven announcing deliverance. There would be no angelic rescue. There would be no other substitute laying in the bushes. The Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus, would become the absolute substitute for Abraham's sons and daughters for us in this room. Peter would say it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Peter said this. He says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. Once and for all time. He suffered for our sins. Isn't that interesting? He didn't just take the payment. He suffered for our sins. And that, that, key, that key, our sins. Can I just say, hi, my name is Ken. And I'm a sinner. We don't like to hear that. Apart from God, apart from his grace, apart from his mercy demonstrated toward me on the cross, I am sin-stained and sin-covered. This is Christ suffered for our sins once and for all time. He never sinned. Christ, Jesus, he never sinned. But he died for sinners. And I love this phrase. He died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. That's the love that he has for you. He's always been thinking about you. Listen, God's posture toward you is not one of being in a bad mood. His posture toward you has been one of wanting to bring you safely home to him, to bring you safely into relationship with him. God's posture is he wants you to spend eternity in his presence in heaven with him, enjoying him. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. You say, Ken, what does this have to do with what you've been saying? This is the answer to our idolatry. We need to offer our idols up, and rather than clutching to them too tightly, which is what causes them to become idols, right? When I take a good gift that God has given me and I grab onto it and I say, I'm not letting go of this, but instead I hold it loosely and I offer it to God, that's the answer what I do grab onto is something so much more worthy, so much more greater and eternal. I latch onto the assurance that God so loves and cherishes me that I can actually rest my heart upon him. I can look to Christ for the significance and security that my heart has been longing for. And I can find that real fulfillment comes when God alone sits on the throne. So can I just ask you, who is sitting in the throne of your life? Is it God? Is it God and something else, someone else? In fact, I'm going to have you stand to your feet. I've got a couple questions that I want to ask in these last few moments. We're almost done. Here's the first question that I would want to ask you is, Have you come to a place of receiving the love and the forgiveness of God for you? I'm not asking, are you religious? I'm not asking, are you a member of a church or if you've been baptized or not? What I'm asking is, has there been a place, a time in your life where you've recognized the weight of your sin where you humbled yourself and said, Jesus, have mercy on me. I've sinned against you. I believe you are the son of God. Come and forgive me of my sin. Based on your death and resurrection, forgive me of my sin. Be the master and leader of my life. This is a question of of lordship. This is a question of who is your master? Who are you following? Are you a follower of Jesus? When, When you ask him to come into your life, you become an actual active follower of Jesus. So all over this room, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to have you come forward. I'm not going to have everybody turn around and look at you. On January 1st, we're going to have baptisms where we're going to publicly demonstrate what God has been doing inside of us. It's going to be an incredible moment. But right now, wherever you are in this room, if you'd say, Ken, or maybe you're watching online and you'd let us know in the comments or send us a message. If you say, Ken, I, I've never asked Jesus to come into my life. Or maybe I made that decision years ago, but as I look over my life, Jesus is not the one calling the shots. He's not the one sitting in the driving position of my life. If that's you and you say, Ken, would you pray for me? I want Jesus to come into my life. Would you just raise your hand? I'd love to be able to pray with you. Be the joy today. Yeah, I see you. Anybody else that would say that to me? Just raise your hand high enough that I can see you. Yeah, I see you. Anybody else? Yeah, I see you. Anybody else? This is it. This is getting the top button in the top slot. It's it's saying. Jesus is going to be Lord. He's going to be the forgiver of my sins. Yeah, I see you. You can lower your hand. Anybody else? If you raised your hand, would you just pray under your breath, would you just pray this prayer? Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you that you are alive and that you have the power to change my life. I invite you, I welcome you to take control of my life. Forgive me of my sins. Empower me to follow after you. Guys, those, I think there was three individuals that I saw that raised their, their, your hands. If you're making that commitment, that's the greatest commitment you can make in life. We celebrate that. In fact, I would encourage you to let us know on your connection card that you're making that decision. We'll have prayer partners that'll be up here in just a moment. They would love to pray with you and celebrate what God is doing in your life. But I told you a moment ago that I have two questions. That was the first question. The second question, again, I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads tonight. And I only do this because I don't want people to be embarrassed. But if you're here and you say, Ken, I'm a follower of Jesus, I've I've received his grace, I've received his forgiveness. But Ken, I've just been convicted, not condemned. Condemnation moves us away from God. Conviction draws us to God. But maybe you've been convicted that you would say, Ken, I've allowed other things to creep into the throne of my life. And I just I'm just praying for the grace and the empowerment and the help to focus on Christ so that those things would not be in the throne of my life. Ken, would you would you just pray for me? Because I'm a follower of Jesus, but I, I want to make sure that He alone. Is sitting on the throne. If that's you, again, we're not gonna embarrass you, but if that's you, we just raise your hand. And I want to pray for you. Yeah, all over this room, all over this room. God, have mercy. Have mercy on us. We confess that there have been idols in our lives, maybe good and decent things, but they're idols nonetheless. God, we pray that you would give us the grace and the power, the focus. To hold those things loosely and instead hold on to you all the more that you alone would sit on the throne we pray these things in jesus name amen so a couple things before you leave um talk to somebody about about the response that you made today i promise you there's people all over this room that made the same response maybe married couples or singles find find someone that you can say hey what, what are you thinking about this? Have a conversation about this. Second, we have prayer partners that are coming right now and in and, and just a moment when we dismiss you as everybody else is leaving, they would love to be able to pray with you some more about this. Maybe you need healing. Maybe you're going through a spiritual dry spell and you need somebody just to pray for you. We all go through those, by the way, right? Maybe you just need someone to agree with you and join their faith with you. We would love to be able to pray with you. Maybe you raised your hand uh, earlier for salvation and There's a spiritual rebirth happening in your life. They would love to be able to pray for you. And then the connection cards, we got some good-looking people. They're going to be in the back. Well, so far it's just, Jesse. okay, there's a good-looking. Okay, now we got it. We got Joanne back there. Uh, They would love to take your connection cards as you're leaving, so make sure you have those ready. Hey, next week we're going to be starting our Christmas series. Can't wait to share with you uh, what God's put in our heart that way. But God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you later.